all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, entrepreneurs, and investors about all things value creation and startups. Today, I'm talking to Melissa Withers, who is the managing director of RevUp, a revenue-based financing vehicle for B2B companies. Melissa, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing, David? What are you doing right now? I'm in D.C. Okay. Are you marching? I'm testifying tomorrow to the SEC about how revenue-based investing can broaden the capital toolkit for more founders. I heard which is what I'm kind of, which is what I'm kind of into. Which is really glad that we're talking today because I'm kind of amped because <laughs> you know the backstory here: left traditional venture to create uh, one of the world's first revenue-based funds for early stage companies because I wanted access to a better toolkit to help more founders be successful. So I don't know what's going to be better: you or the SEC. I'm going to guess you. Probably. So you weren't at the Trump rally. Someone said they saw you there. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I had my MAGA uh, jacket on, but I took it off because it was kind of hot in here. Yeah, you got <laughs> no, me pegged. Exactly. You're, like, you definitely got me pegged. Yeah, I fit right in over there. Okay. So tell me, what's revenue-based financing? What's rev up? Tell me about yourself and get, get the yeah, audience well, the story. I, the asset class is really robust and there's all kinds of revenue-based funding out there. And it's important to, I think, recognize that some revenue-based funds have less in common with each other than they do with entirely different modes, right? So I have very little in common with ClearBank, right? But we both are revenue-based investors, right? Um, so I think I can talk about kind of my zone, like where we live, but for anybody out there that's really interested, buyer beware. Revenue-based funding is a pretty diverse asset class and can mean can mean a lot of different things. It can mean short-term. It can mean it can look more like debt, right? It can, it's got a lot. Um, so I can talk a little bit about my flavor and my colleagues who are in the space who sort of, I would say, are adjacent to where we fit. Um, but primarily, at the highest level, when um, I created RevUp back in 2016 uh, with my partners to break free from the exit or bust constraints of equity, the idea that the only way that you could make a meaningful return from a company was through an exit uh, felt like a really myopic view of, of all the different outcomes that a company can have. And I did 90 companies in a seed stage portfolio uh, with an equity model and wanted to move away from that. Um, and in our world, the simplest differentiator is that rather than take an equity ownership into a company, companies return uh, value through what's called a revenue contract, meaning that they share a percentage of their revenue over time, four to six years until meeting a fixed multiple. But again, that's just us, right? So the word is that's not all revenue-based uh, investments don't look like that. So who else sucks? What, who else is doing it? And what are their models? Who else sucks? Yeah. You just shit on your competitors. I mean, I, you don't have to say their names, I, but just give me like, no, you know, I, I guess make them I, rhyme. I, I'm actually like Schmierbank. I, I, well, <laughs> Schmierbank, no, no one would possibly get. I, don't, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with those models if it's the right capital for the right job. So if you're using ClearBank to fund a well-trodden digital marketing strategy, 
great. It can be a really effective way to bridge the delta between when you have to talk to a customer and when they'll give you money, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I think if it you utilize it in a circumstance where maybe your market-facing strategy isn't on lock, right? It can get really expensive really fast. So it, again, I don't think that it's bad. I think there's just the right capital at the right time. And there are a lot of people that don't want to do what we do. Like there are a lot of people who use revenue-based models because they want to be low touch, high, tr like high transaction volume, right? That's not who I am. It's not what I want to be. You know, we only do 10 to 12 companies a year. In that sense, I look more like boutique equity than I look like some of the other models. But I don't think that, I don't think it's like so much good capital, bad capital as got to have the right capital at the right time for the right job. Yeah. Like I'm not anti-equity either, as you know. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think everyone kind of plays a part and it's really up to the founder to discern what's what. Straight up. Yeah. Well, in most companies have a capital stack, right? This idea that you would like, if you go kind of like into deep into startup culture, this idea that the only kind of capital that you would use in your business is equity capital is farcical, right? W what it reflects is that early on when startup culture was kind of becoming a thing, it sort of reflected the experience of the investors that were leading the narrative. But any good company should have more than one kind of capital at play inside of its business. You wouldn't use um, you wouldn't use equity to fund like short term capital stuff like that would be stupid, right? You wouldn't mm -hmm. use you shouldn't use equity to fund inventory if you're a physical product company. That's kind of dumb, right? So I think most companies have a pretty diverse capital <laughs> stack. We just don't talk about it in startup land very much. Got it. And so, what exactly are you doing in the SEC? Are you fighting for regulation, accredited investor stuff? What? What is? No, it? I'm I've I'm a I'm an invited guest uh, there to speak to the, the subcommittee on capital formation about how innovation in the capital toolkit might be a missing piece in this puzzle about how to help more entrepreneurs build businesses better, bigger, and faster. Okay. So as an invited guest, you're kind of representing the revenue-based financing. So is your job just to educate them on, on what RBF is? Specifically about revenue-based funding as it's applied to founders that are underserved by venture. So I'm not going to attempt to speak for all revenue-based funders right now, just mm -hmm. revenue-based funders that see that you can use some of these equity alternatives and some of this, this these other forms of capital to get into businesses that are historically, and for sometimes good reason, underserved by traditional venture. And so tell me about what underserved means to you. Yeah, well... I mean, pretty much if you're a female founder or a black or brown founder or a founder building a company outside of a top tier geography, you are by definition underserved by venture capital. Like you collectively as a whole group rolled up, get less than 4% of all venture capital that's out there, right? So just underserved. Now, I would say having been an equity investor, most companies are not good targets for venture, right? And so they're right. not by they're not necessarily just excluded because of racial or gender bias, many, many young entrepreneurs themselves don't realize that they're not on path to become a $300 million company, right? Like they just don't understand the mathematics of it. Um, but historically, and even in the current day, pretty much if you're not in a network, it's really hard to get access to that capital, right? Especially when I think like traditional big venture, coastal venture, I mean, that's kind of inside baseball. So I think for me, underrepresented, um, I don't like that word as much. I like to use underserved because I, I don't think it's the founder's fault. I think in many cases, they're underserved by venture because venture actually isn't the right device for them and it's not the right capital. 
But if you don't have any other kind of capital available for early stage companies, then how are these, you know, you're really missing out on an opportunity to grow these businesses and investors are missing out on an opportunity to monetize those investments. Yeah. So, I mean, do you see that on the coasts? I mean, like I would say in middle America, you know, so I'm in Arizona, right? So I would consider us like a cow town, a under quote unquote underserved geography and like the litmus, I think of founder ability and traction is really how much revenue do you have? Whereas, you know, if you were in a coast, your litmus to, I guess, your, your, your aptitude was the network you're in and the, um, the, the school you went to. Is that my kind of heading? I mean, it's like correctly? all of the above. It's all of the above. I mean, some of it is, do you know the language of venture? Do you know how to sell your story in a way that aligns with those patterns, right? So yeah, it's all of the above. So, I mean, I don't know if I consider Scottsdale like a total podunk um, town, right? Um, let me but, shut up my town. It's a podunk town. I mean, you're in Boston. You're in Baston, right? I mean, you—you—you you, you, can't tell me about underserved founders in Boston. Well, I don't really—I don't have any underserved founders in Boston. I invested into, but there's underserved founders everywhere, right? Um, yeah. Because there are just there are just companies. Put aside all of the kind of systemic issues that we have with capital and and who gets it, right? Put that all aside most companies are really not good candidates for big E equity, like big V equity. Like they're just not, they shouldn't be taking dollars from Sequoia. They're not on that path. It's a no. very narrow, right? There's a, but there are a lot of other venture firms, particularly over the last 10, 10 years that I've met in many not coastal regions, right? I spent a lot of time in Atlanta, Raleigh Durham area. And there are a lot of regional VC funds that I think are looking for exits is what they do, but they, they look really different than the coastal funds. And a lot of my companies have gone on to take series A investment from those funds. So again, like I'm not anti-equity. I'm just, um, I wanted the flexibility to invest in companies and not be dependent on exits as the primary way of delivering value back to my investors. Is that a hard thing to kind of um, relay to founders, the, that model versus the traditional equity model that's kind of tried and tested? No. I mean, not today. No, I, I mostly no. Um, I mean, I think sometimes there's I mean, some founders I meet have no idea that anything exists except, you know, angel rounds and series A rounds. And, but no, I, I think it's changed a lot. <laughs> Um, many, many founders come to me already aware that non-dilutive funding has become a very normalized kind of legitimate consideration on your journey. Again, it, in my world, it's not either or. So most of our companies have had equity investment before meeting me, and many of them go and have equity investment after meeting me, right? So again, not trying to create this like either or like, oh, you'll never be venture scale or you'll never raise a series A, right? Um, so no, I would say a surprising number of founders are interested in non-dilutive capital. And I think it's been around long enough now that yeah. most people have had some exposure. Now, do they understand the like the dimensions of it all the time? Like, no, like you have to kind of talk them through like, okay, how does it work? Right. How do I, how does this actually work? Um, but no, it's, I mean, it's pretty accepted asset class these days. That's awesome. So 12 companies a year. Yep. And how what's your kind of average check size fund structure how do you how do you think about that 
Yeah. So our average investment is with two parts. So we have the cash component, which is in our usually between three fifty and five hundred thousand dollars, and then we have a pretty robust capacity component to our investment that we've had since day one, which is focused on helping companies kind of transform their market-facing apparatus, right? So if you think about companies come into our portfolio, they've got maybe a million dollars in revenue. There's that whole like like zero to one, one to 10 kind of journey. And a lot of stuff that gets you to that first million dollars in revenue, like not only will it not get you to 10, some of it's like actively going to block your path to 10, right? So getting out of founder-led sales, for example, figuring out how to build like a multi-cylinder market-facing engine. So um, that's kind of the, we don't, we don't invest without delivering that, so that kind of goes that kind of goes together. Um, and so you'll see us sometimes adjacent to an equity raise, uh, sometimes standalone, or sometimes before what the founders hope will be an equity raise. Although in my world, we don't invest into companies that are totally dependent on that in order to um, have survivability. Yeah, I think there's so many great companies of you know where founders can just get some optionality and be able to sell early and grab, you know, a couple million dollars of ARR and have a great outcome without having to have the pressure of like a venture type return. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of the founders that I invest into are like, don't, aren't looking for an exit at a couple, you know, at two or $3 million. But yes, I, I love the word optionality. I'm glad you brought it up. I think it's the most, it is the least appreciated, most underused, term in entrepreneurship is preserving your optionality and many mm -hmm. founders don't understand that till they don't have any <laughs> right? right and i think no, exactly. that right like right so and so you only know that when it's happened to you and so a lot of, of the model that we've designed is we just want to give those founders more optionality so for the 30 percent of those founders that go on to raise traditional series a they do it at better terms from better investors because they've they've boosted the trajectory. We've had companies, I had a company in Raleigh that sold to the London Stock Exchange Group for $300 million last year, and they had only raised $1.5 million in equity. They made 20 millionaires the day the deal closed, right? Then I have other companies that have kind of ended up following the traditional venture path, and it's been mixed results for them. It's been good for me, but mixed results for them. You know, they found themselves in that position where they're hyper-capitalized, they have an investor-led board, but, you know, God forbid you hit the top of an S-curve. So it's a little bit of everything. And then I have a, a pretty robust cohort of companies that, you know, I think they can be $20 million companies. They're on their way and um, we're on that ride with them. So it's, it's all about optionality and preserving that optionality. And nothing gives you optionality like revenue. Yeah, like totally. that's like that is one of the best kinds of um, optionality that you can give yourself is um, the ability to survive and sustain and not be dependent on someone else's money. Right. It's usually when people run out of optionality and they take investor money like this. The, the famous last words are I never took venture money before. And this yeah. happened. <laughs> yeah. 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 You don't like not being over a barrel. That said, I mean, like running a business is expensive and it is really difficult to like, I'm also, <clears throat> I, I also think this romantic relationship with bootstrapping can be taken to like unproductive extremes. Like there are times when you mm -hmm. need to spend into growth. Right. And there's nothing romantic about barely making it, you know, kind of getting by the skin of your teeth, burning everybody out. Like it's not like, I'm, I'm also, I'm no more enamored of that than I am of like hyper capitalizing and taking too much money, right? Like the real, the, the good, the juicy stuff is in between those two states. Like you don't want to live like a refugee, but nor should you burn money in a barrel just because somebody doesn't write 
a check smaller than $2 million. <laughs> like there's something in between those things, like figuring that out. Yeah. And like, I think that, um, you know, I've seen people that bootstrap, like, I like that, like romanticizing the bootstraps and they lose. Yeah. Right. They totally lose. Yeah. It's super risky. You know, it's they like totally the, the, all yes. of a sudden like seven competitors yes. like pass them and they're like the number nine and they're getting, yeah. and they're getting yeah. sold for four times EBITDA, you That's know? Right. Yeah. It's not like you, you got to look at your business, your goals, your plan, and then have a capital strategy that matches to that. And you got to think about being like a good capital operator these days. Like it's, you've got like, that's your job as an operator is to figure out how do I forward plan to have the right capital at the right time so that we can hit our growth goals? Like, but we don't, again, it's not like, it's not, that's not sexy talk. You don't hear about it at like, you know, startup accelerators are never talking about your capital strategy. It's all about mm -hmm. how to close a series A round. Right. But my favorite operators are the ones that figure it out. You know, they get a capital mentor they figure it out early on, early on, they figure it out that they're going to need a little bit of everything. And they're just going to do their best to try not to reduce their optionality downstream. Because that's what happens when you over rotate on a particular kind of capital. I mean, you can do it with debt too. I mean, I've seen companies overdo it on, you know, debt products, right? Well, that's not good either. You want to over leverage when you're young, right? You don't want to do that because then mm -hmm. you then you close off all that. I've had companies that have signed not great revenue based deals for very small amounts of money, but they're locked into that now. They can't take strategic money until that's cleared right. off, right? Like so, it, it's. And then I certainly, having done a hundred and something companies now, I've absolutely seen what happens when you overcapitalize and get yourself on that treadmill. Because the minute you get to that certain level of capital, you're not on your timeline anymore, right? Like somebody else is going to be influencing that timeline and have expectations for what they think you should be doing in order to get to the exit that they're looking for. And if you're not ready for that, it's like getting on an escalator. And you're trying to like walk backwards, but like you're still going up, man. Like <laughs> yeah. you're gonna, you know, like one way or another, you're gonna get to the top, whether you're ready or not. And you might not like the consequences when you get there. So I think it's just more, just being more open about all capital has its cost, man. All capital has its cost, and that's why it's the best thing in the world is to be super rich and fund your own shit. But that's not most. That's not what most of us can do. So right. So, so after investing in hundreds of startup companies, what are some of the heuristics that you see that make up a really great founder? For RevUp or in general? In general. In general? That's a great question. Because I, I, so much for me is just, I just have to give a fuck about you, right? So, and that just is not a very good heuristic, like, because I care about a lot of people that end up not being that great. Um, I tend to gravitate towards founders that have like are aspirational like they're like they're into it and they see it but at the end of the day i really like it when a founding team knows how to execute like i, I like when people like to operate like when they they're confident and capable not just like fundraising or telling the story of their business but actually like thinking kind of creatively about how to how to run the business and how to be running the business in new and exciting ways i i have always historically tended to skew for strong operating teams. Um, I think authentic match, like you've gotta, like if you don't have that founder, authentic founder fit where like you don't belong in that company and that like you don't belong in that segment, that can be really hard to overcome for an early stage company. So like if you're a founder of a company that isn't credible within your customer segment, that's pretty hard to get over too. So yeah. I think some of the, especially for earlier, now later on, like I, I mean, I. I, I could be an interim CEO of almost anything, right? Because it's just 
different job, right? Later on, you're doing different things. But I think for early stage founders, it's really hard to, if, you, if you're depending on other people to really make you credible within your customer segment, that, I mean, I, that's a pretty big barrier to get over. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, those are, those are like strong operating teams and like authentic, like it makes sense, right? How you got, how you got there. Why are you in this company? Like, why do you do what you do? Like, it, it's got to be something there that makes you credible in one way or another. And I don't mean like you got to scratch your own itch because that can sometimes be bad when a founder starts a company to scratch their own itch. And then they're so like myopically blind mm-hmm. to what's really going on in the market. But that authenticity where they, they got to know something about something, right? That, right? that gives them that, that little like edge that they can either talk to a customer in a way that somebody else can't or predict or meet those needs in ways that would be difficult to do if you didn't you know, have a real like taste for it. How do you uh, quantify or identify, put parameters around grit? Grit. Yeah. So that's a good one because I've lived through several cycles of really toxic masculinity in startup culture um, and seen the, like, I mean, I've, I've had entrepreneurs like commit suicide, right? So I think my own definition of grit has changed through the years when I think about, I've helped founders walk away from companies when the, the company was unlikely to be successful and all that was gonna happen was they, they were gonna go down with the ship. So I think my own relationship uh, to grit has evolved over time. Mm-hmm. I think the healthiest form of grit is this almost indefatigable optimism. It's like Groundhog Day. Like you wake up in the morning and you forgot how shitty you felt the day before and you're you're <laughs> like you're gonna try it again like almost like groundhog day right like you have the worst fucking day ever and then you wake up in the morning and you're like all right let's try it again so i i think that kind of grit is this almost authentic ability to process good and bad but start fresh like the ability to come at a problem in a fresh way and not everybody has that. So most people carry, should start instead companies. Instead of carrying either. your shit, you know, day after day, right? Yeah. And many people should not be founders. Like, it's also not not because they're not good enough. It's because they're just better at something else. Like, founders actually need other people that aren't founders to help them build their companies, right? So this idea that everybody needs to be a founder, I think, is also a hyper-romanticized view of what it means to be a founder. Um, but yeah, I think my version of grit, and I guess, I mean, I may just be rewarding it because it's how I think about my own ability to persist is you know like even after a pretty shitty like slate of stuff i don't know like i wake up in the morning and i'm i love what i do and i want to do it again and i think my the founders that i i would say have a lot of grit it's not that they drive themselves into the ground and put their families at risk and you know put their mental health at risk they just they just wake up in the morning and they just want to try it again and and they do and it kind of work and it you know kind of works out so i guess that's right now the closest thing to grit that i can celebrate god being a founder sucks i couldn't imagine it's the worst i mean (laughs) i could why would you sign up for that it's all it's really hard and that's why that's why you have to that's why i think that authenticity is so important because why else would you persist with this if if you didn't authentically really like find yourself connected to it well, why did you do it, right? Super hard, yeah. And again, it's especially difficult in a culture where we've just made up so many, like so much mythology about the entrepreneur and like entrepreneur as hero and founder as somehow being better than a not founder, which is right. bullshit. Like it, none it's of that's bullshit. true. 
It's all bullshit, right? Like some of my favorite people in my companies are not the founders. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, they're, not. they're number two or true. three. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Like it's, it's just not, in, and some founders, also most founders don't realize that like one of the steps on your journey is often not being the founder anymore. Like there's all kinds of complexity there that people kind of, I think, underappreciate because the story just isn't as, as sexy. But yeah, I think there's a, um, a lot about entrepreneurship that actually got really focused on founders as opposed to the all of the exciting ways that you create value through entrepreneurship. Like the founder is just like one part of that. And I think we just like anything, it gets just like the narrative just gets really like broken down into like the tiniest like snippet. But in the like when you think about the way that entrepreneurship brings value into the world and how we can use entrepreneurship to not just create economic value, but like make the world a better place. It's not just about founders. <laughs> like it's just no. not. No. Right? There's plenty of plenty of roles in there for everybody, right? So what about like I love talking about toxic masculinity within the startup culture. What about just you know, toxic ego, masculinity, whatever within the investor side of the table? Yeah, definitely. Um, Let's unpack yeah. that. Uh, unpack it. I mean, it's still, it, that's still most of it, right? It's still mostly a bunch of dudes. Um, and it's, it's actually most, again, most people don't realize that in order to be a VC, you kind of have to be made already because most young people that want to be fund managers don't realize that you don't really get paid until way over right. here. Yeah. So it, the, the, the institution itself kind of selects a certain kind of persona, right? It tends to be people who made some small amount of money or large amount of money, and that's what they wanted to do with it, right? They wanted that. It's a little bit like growing up and like when always ask yourself, why does anybody want to grow up to become a cop? Right. It's like it's they're either, they're either, yeah, parents right, are they're cops. Either, they're either, yeah. yeah, or they're either like the paladin, like from, Dun like they either believe in like good injustice or they're like control freak people that like want that, right? I think it's the mm -hmm. same way with investing. You know, it attracts certain persona. Um, I mean, I mean, I've been, I've been at it for a really long time and I've normalized a lot of it and I got through it just fine. Um, but certainly, there's certainly like a flywheel effect where like begets like, and it keeps like, it's really hard to break that. So when you think about the archetype of most funders, they're just repeating what they believe. Like it's this sort of flywheel of repeating mythology. Of biases. And, and it's, it's all it's, these biases. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. a big goat fuck of bias. It's, it's a lot of that. Goat fuck. Good. Yeah. Goat fuck. Yeah. Um, so I think that's still kind of the norm. I mean, there's certainly been a lot of interesting people coming into the space. I'm not the only person that like, you know, points, points shit out. Um, I, there are some really interesting women who've come into the funding space. Um, I have met some really great regional VCs that I think are culturally as a, you know, more aligned with the kinds of things that I value, but in general, yeah, it's like big dick swinging. Like, how big is your fund? Oh my god, I can't mm -hmm. tell you. I go to a cock I go to like a cocktail reception for investors. Maybe like you know, not that many chicks in the room. I guarantee you, one of the first three questions will be, "How big is your fund?" <laughs> and I'm like, "What? Like, what does that even mean?" Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Right? Exactly. Like, 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 let's unpack that guy. Like, <laughs> right. Like, why are you asking about the size of my? It's the least in like. 
what is that even about, right? That's so like, funny. Yeah. How big I'll is your I'll, fund? Tonight, like, really? I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm gonna go to a dinner tonight, and I guarantee you, a bunch of investors, I'm gonna get asked how how big is my fund. Yeah, well, for how sure. How big's your fund? Yeah. Oh yeah. How <laughs> big's your fund? Guy? I mean, I, like, I don't even care. Like, I wouldn't even think to ask. I wouldn't even think to ask, right? I just, I'm more interested in what do you like to fund? What are you into? Like. What kinds of companies? What's what, like? What, what kind of deals do you like to do? Are you first money, second? Like, what do you like to? How big is your fund? It's like That's that. So definitely funny. like that. Yeah. You know, something you know, we we've, we've shared you know um, a meal or two, and you know, I've really laughed at this you know because you've helped really um, level set um, you know a recent transaction that we did as an independent observer, and it was very valuable. But it was really funny how. You were talking to the the founder of said company before, and you know we were talk. You were talking to her and advising her about how to navigate two different investor personas, right? And to get this deal done and get yeah. it over the finish line. And you were like, "Don't you think it's funny that you are the only person in this room that has any type of externality, and yeah. the rest of us are just talking, <laughs> right? We're just, just talking, talking into the yeah. air." Yeah, just talking. Meanwhile, you've got to run payroll tomorrow and you've got to do the customer calls and yeah. <laughs> you got to hear that you have to beg the customer to use the product and pay for the product yeah, and all, all the things. Yeah. And, but, <laughs> and, yeah. And, but it but doesn't we, make but... that reality any less real. It's just, it's good sometimes to remind yourself that you know, like, that's how like you, and you have to sort of lean into that. Like, I mean, you don't want to like sell your soul, but that is why people invest is because they are like whatever their narrative drift is like you got you want to get on that right you got to get down with that drift right but you got to play it you got to play the game yeah there... you got to play it and and oftentimes two different investors in the same round you, you might be having really different conversations with them yeah right totally. to get to get to the same place so that's something that if you haven't done it you know i think this is why it's hard for for founders who haven't raised money before to raise money because if again it's this flywheel like you only know what you know and like if, if you haven't done that 13,000 times then like you may miss the signal right and I think that's why it's really good when you, we go back to what makes what I like in a founder I think when a founder is willing to show some vulnerability around the gaps in their experience or the gaps in their knowledge I'm much more inclined to want to help them so it's very the, affable you know, the, the founder that we that we, we both work with is really clear about what she doesn't know. And I appreciate that about her, you know, and it's like, I mean, she knows more than she thinks sometimes, but in general, like, I appreciate that. And we've, she's done better for it, right? She's, she's avoided some pretty messed up stuff by raising her hand and saying, I don't think I really understand what this is. Like, can you unpack mm -hmm. this for me and help me understand it? So I like that in a founder. Yeah, no, she's great. She's great. All right, yeah. a couple canned questions that we ask everybody hey. before the end of the hey. how big's your How big's your fund? I'm just kidding. Ah. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, what's your favorite book? <laughs> do you read? Do you know how to read? I do read. Uh, I love to read, but my favorite stuff to read is super, super, super lightweight stuff. So I read um, tons of books um, about this French detective. Um, he's in. He's he's French Canadian. It's a fucking French Canadian mystery series. And all they do is, is like James Lee Burke. No, um, it's Inspector Gamache. Um, I love in it. They're ridiculous. They're like watching paint dry. Um, I I read. Um, I I just recently read this whole series of book called By the Rivers of London, and it's basically like a grown up Harry Potter. 
Um, I love magazines. So I read um, The Economist and New Yorker. Like I love magazines. But yeah, when I consume uh, content for pleasure, I, I'm truly trying. All I do all day is absorb content, not for pleasure, right? Like yeah. I am basically, it's like my job is to analyze content. So yeah, when I read books, um, I studied literature, uh, did my, my master's degree is in science and technical communication. And so I spent a lot of quality time with some pretty heavy books. Um, and when I was an undergraduate, uh, I studied literature and critical theory, which is like a rabbit hole of books. And so I think all of that comes together, which is why I read um, like serials, like pulpy, crappier mm. the better. Yeah, yeah. It's my favorite thing to I, read. I love the, I love novels like that. You should take a look yeah. at um, if you like detective, like with a lot of descriptive like in nuances to it. There's a book about a Cajun detective in New okay. Orleans. <laughs> you All know, right. and I probably love that. And uh, yep. it's. Um, it's the author's called Dave, uh, J- James Lee Burke and um, the, what was the, Dave Robichaud. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. He, was, he, has, he, has like a lot, he has a lot of books, I think. Hasn't he written stuff mm-hmm. like many, right? It pops up in my recommended for you yes. all the time. Yeah, so, so now, see me, yeah, me, yeah, me and the AI are, are simpatico. Um, yep. Best piece of business advice you've ever received? Man, these are not canned. Best piece of business advice. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if this was a singular piece of advice, um, or more, it was a a lot of, a lot of subtle cues. Um, when I was coming up in my career, I was always in, um, industries where I was not supposed to be the boss. So started out in biological sciences at a time when there were not that many women in science, uh, went into um, government politics at a time where many women politics went into entrepreneurship at a time when there were no female fund managers. And I think for a really long time, I had really terrible imposter syndrome. And I, I just couldn't shut my trap. My, I couldn't stop talking. And the, some of the best advice I got was reclaiming the power of not talking instead of feeling like I needed to fill every space and constantly be, you know, presenting myself as, worthy of being in the conversation. And I think some of the best advice I got was to not put like, not wear myself out that way, but it just, that all that energy was sort of going into the ether and could probably be redirected in other ways. So I think it's sort of that combination of being able to see myself as, you know, being legitimate, legitimate and worthy, but also recognizing that it is not my responsibility to fill the dead air because I'm the only woman in the room and women are supposed to make rooms cheery and festive. So I don't know if it was a singular piece of advice, but I got some good feedback from from some chicks and a couple of dudes about the power of saying nothing versus the power of always talking. Yeah. I don't feel cheery when you come into a room. You don't? No. <laughs> I feel like Maybe I a little bit on this I podcast. Like, <laughs> I feel like I when don't. you came into my podcast room, I felt dread. Oh, great. Perfect. That's <laughs> That's definitely yeah. If you can't if you can't make someone happy, make them feel dread. Yeah. Bart, but aren't you glad I didn't go into like Melissa? Tell me about your boxing. You know, like aren't you sick of telling that story? No, but but yeah. I mean, it could, well, it's just those aren't good stories to tell because they're boring. Nobody wants to hear my story. Now, if I played a clip of me punching some chick in the face over and over again. The audience might like that, but me telling somebody about boxing is pretty fucking boring. Yeah, I bet you you could kick the shit out of me in a boxing ring. I'm a pussy. I don't. I don't know, man. Boxing is weird. It's all psychological. <laughs> so psychological. Because I might be scared of you, right? Like I don't know. Like 
like boxing boxing is def is definitely weird awesome. definitely All weird right. yeah melissa thanks for coming on everybody thank you for listening to the capital stack we drop an episode every tuesday on all your favorite platforms apple spotify and YouTube, if you like it, please share with a friend. Cancel me, do whatever. I will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.